What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We are doing episode two in our four-part series of Halloween, spooky October 2020. The world is, in some places, literally on fire, in other places, metaphorically on fire. So let's all kick back, unwind, watch some spooky fall movies, and really start to investigate everything that makes this month of October so supremely awesome. As I said, I am very excited to be here. We wanted to do, in this month, we wanted to do a movie that felt both modern, both contemporary and fresh and unique, but also a nod to some more classic horror, horror-like Edgar Allan Poe, creepy in your bones, a little Americana horror that like lurks underneath a little psychological, a little demonic. And as we were debating what the second slate of this movie, it became very clear to us what movie we wanted to do. One, because we think this movie is exceptional. Um, Two, Because Laurel and I are also having a baby, and Laurel will be a mother soon, we wanted to take a movie that captured that classic, spooky, scary, in-your-bones kind of terror, mixed with some modern contemporary psychological ideals, as well as dealing with the themes of parenthood. And once we recognized this is where we were going, there was only one clear movie for us to pick as our, like, real traditional horror movie that is 2018 horror masterpiece the debut directorial film of a modern horror art tour in Ari Aster hereditary yeah although those hallmarks that you just put out there uh motherhood and uh supernatural horror and classic horror and whatnot could also apply to things like Rosemary's Baby and the Babadook. So I just want to say there's some interesting um, patterns in horror when it comes to relationships between family and mothers in particular. So I just thought that was an interesting way to lead in. But yeah, we're really excited to talk. Hereditary came out two years ago and has already found its place among contemporary horror royalty. Like this film, I think, will go down as one of the great horror films of the decade, if not of the 21st century. Uh, And 
can compete with films like The Shining and can compete with films like The Exorcist as like a real uh, in-your-face, deeply scary, um, but also deeply um, uh, moving and stirring piece. So super exciting to talk about it because it also has a lot of what we love to talk about, which is history, mythology, and philosophy underneath its surface. So yeah. Um, It goes without saying, but we really want to say it for this episode because this movie is so new and because this movie has lots of twists and turns, things that you can't really see coming. Um, this is your official spoiler warning. Don't let us spoil hereditary for you right now. It's streaming. If you're an Amazon prime member for free. So use your Amazon prime stream this movie, then come back to the midnight myth. And actually you might want to see it twice because it's that good it took us a few times watching it until we felt comfortable being able to talk about it in the podcast to really kind of wrap our head around what this movie is saying both at its surface and underneath the surface. And I think it is saying some interesting things. So let this be your spoiler wall. If you haven't seen Hereditary yet, please go out and support this movie Um, Ari Aster does a fantastic job as the director on this. Every single person working in this movie really just pulled it off. It is a modern masterpiece. In a weird way, it felt very similar to when I first saw Greta Gerwig's Little Women, the other really recent movie that we just covered in previous podcasts. In that, when I saw Little Women, and when when those credits rolled, I'm like, I just watched a classic. Even though it's new, I know I'm going to be watching this movie for the rest of my life. I know I'm going to be talking about it. I just watched an actual masterpiece. Very much like when you mentioned the movie The Shining. The first time I saw The Shining, I was blown away, and I believed I'd never seen anything as truly scary as that movie, and I recognized its inherent greatness as a work of art. Hereditary, I had a very similar experience When I first watched it, I was floored. I am still floored by the movie. Oh, yeah. We've seen it like three or four times now. And every time we have to like take a moment and just say, wow, like what a piece of craft from all angles. It's incredible. It's exquisite. And in in order to properly analyze it, I had to get myself somewhat desensitized, pardon me, to the true terror that this movie represents because it's that genuinely scary of a movie that I'm like, okay, now that I'm not afraid of it because I know what's going to happen, now let me try to analyze it. And that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, same, same. Before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so my thing is just that we want to hear from you. Uh, We are all over social media. Our favorite place to hang out on social media is at Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth. And if you ever want to reach out, that's the best place to reach us. You can also find us on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast and on Facebook. Uh, You can also head over to our website, midnightmyth.com, for extra content. There's some blogs there. Uh, And that is also where you'll find links to our Patreon page and our merch store. If you have a little bit of extra money lying around and you want to support us, or you really, really need a Midnight Myth t-shirt like the one Derek is wearing right now, actually. I just realized it. He's repping the podcast, and it looks great. Um, and if you don't have extra money to spare to your favorite podcast these days, that's fine. The best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money at all. And that's just to leave us 
a rating or a review. Uh, if you love what you're hearing and you want other people to know how you feel about it or you want to give us feedback, uh, head to your favorite podcast app, head to Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, tell us what you like about the podcast, tell us what we're doing right. Uh, that means a lot to us and it helps us get out to other audiences. All right, let's try the briefest of brief recaps. Yeah, once again, spoilers, spoilers, ye be warned. Please don't let us spoil this movie for you if you haven't seen it. I'm going to do my best to recap this movie because this movie is pretty unrecapable. Yeah, it's tough. This movie is about a family dealing with trauma. It starts with a family whose grandmother has passed away. And surprisingly, lots of uninvited and unknown guests to the surviving family members show up on the funeral, in which we learn that the grandmother was private, cruel, and mean. Then we deal with a mother who has two kids, a teenage son and a preteen, just teenage daughter. The daughter is a little awkward and weird, and uh, they are married to a father played by the amazing Gabriel Byrne. The mother of this story, Annie, is having a tough time dealing with her mother's death, dealing the fact that her brother was schizophrenic, her mother was abusive, and we learn that she kept her son away from her mother because she thought her mother would be a toxic influence. We also learn that in order to bridge the gap when she was having her daughter, she brought the mother back in, and the grandmother had a close connection to the socially awkward Charlie, who seems more interested in ripping things apart and putting them back together in creepy, weird ways, like cutting off the head of a bird and tying it to a toy, than she does interacting with other kids. Her son, Annie's son Peter, decides he wants to go to a party, and Annie says you must take the, your little sister Charlie. Things add tragically when Charlie eats a cake with nuts in it, and while Peter's trying to rush her to the hospital, Charlie sticks her head out the window and gets decapitated. This is where the story really goes into hyperdrive, as the family dealing with the loss of a grandmother slash mother, now dealing with the loss of a daughter slash sister, is thrown into full crisis. Annie meets this mysterious friend, Joan, and Joan tries to entice Annie into occult ways, teaching her a spell that would be able to summon her dead daughter, Charlie, so that she could speak with Charlie. Well, this seems to work. However, the spirit seems angry and vengeful and wanting to take control over Peter's body. Annie, recognizing that this is probably a demon and not her daughter, decides she's going to burn a sketchbook of her daughter's, which she believes is the familiar, which connects Charlie's spirit to the physical world. As she attempts to burn this book, it actually lights her on fire, so she can't burn it. Peter ends up going through a deep possession slash psychological meltdown, ends up abusing his own body by slamming his head in the desk at school and gets sent home to school, presumably under pain medicine and put to sleep. This is where the story comes to a head. Annie, convinced that burning the sketchbook would end the demon scourge, asks her husband to burn the sketchbook after discovering the desecrated corpse of her mother in the attic having been beheaded and placed in like an occult-like uh, symbol or symbology. Her husband refuses to burn the book, Annie believing that if the sketchbook burns, she'll burn and that will sacrifice, will suffice the, this eventual spirit and hopefully save Peter. When her husband refuses to do so, Annie throws the book into the fire 
Instead of having the effect of burning herself, it burns her husband to death. This is when that vengeful spirit seems to take complete control over Annie's body. Annie chases her son around the house with sort of floaty magic-like powers until she slowly and gruesomely, using what appears to be a wire, rips off her own head. Then we see the decapitated corpse of Annie's body floating into the treehouse, which was a favorite spot of the young Charlie. There we see Peter being chased around by people in the house, naked, until he jumps out of a window and is reborn Payman, one of the rulers of hell. And this is when we learn that Charlie was in fact Payman and needed to be freed from the female body that the demon did not want so that the demon can be reborn into Peter. Joan is a member of this occult. We also learn that Annie's mother, Peter, and Charlie's grandmother was a member of this cult. And the movie ends with the cultists at a gruesome altar of decapitated heads, blood, a statue of Payman gets crowned the new king of hell reborn on earth. Ooh, oh man, it's like uh, we we just watched it, and so like all the imagery is still with me. But when you describe some of the things that happen in the movie, it just sends a chill down my spine because Ari Aster was able to identify some like he doesn't rely on jump scares a lot, but he gives you some slow, methodical, really terrible imagery that just sticks with you, and it it just scares you like a slow burning flame. Uh, and it's just really, really hard to get over. I thought that was an excellent recap. Uh, it was an incredible undertaking to try and recap everything that happens in that movie with all the twists and turns. So well done. One of the most interesting things about this movie is a quote I got from Ari Aster, which I think is what makes it almost impossible to recap, is that he called it, oh, I thought I had the quote here. I don't have it in my notes. I'll summarize it. I'll paraphrase it. Was that this is a conspiracy movie without any exposition. They never really explain the conspiracy that's going against this family. So the entire time we're watching this family fall apart, we, the audience, and the family are both wondering, why is this happening to them? And we have to piece together the clues to understand that this was a demon cult worshiping Paimon, a demon, and that the entire purpose of this cult was to find a human body to have Paimon get reborn into, and that body was originally supposed to be Peter, but because of the family dynamic, Annie wouldn't allow it. And then it becomes Charlie. However, Payman wants to be in a boy, wants to be a man, wants to have a penis, and doesn't want to be in Charlie. So they have to orchestrate the death of Charlie so the spirit of the demon can be free and then orchestrate the uh, death of the rest of the family so that payment can be instilled into Peter and that this cult can have their demon king on earth. Whew, yeah. Um, it's, it's extraordinary how much uh, is, how much is communicated without ever really uh, beating us over the head with that exposition. And I think Ari Aster has another quote where he says, we're watching this from the perspective of the sacrificial lambs. You zoom out and you see, uh, that a series of what appear to be uh, natural or freak accidents are actually being uh, set into motion by the forces on the outskirts of the story. We're being sort of under observed, the characters are under observation 
by this cult who are just right on the periphery of the story for the entire time, uh, who are helping to pull the strings and bring about this terrible fate for this family. And can I just say the acting, the directing, the editing, the music, the lighting, I just think that this movie is from the like technical slash magical part of filmmaking. I think it's exceptional. I do too. And, you know, Tony Collette really has to be the the standout call out here at the beginning. I, I think a lot of people have thrown praise on her performance, but she deserves every single word of it. One of my favorite actors who is, uh, she's in a lot of indie pieces and she is on a lot of underrated media and things that like a lot of people haven't seen, but every time she's on screen, she's extremely compelling. And in this movie, she has to navigate uh, some really, really incredible twists and turns and keep this character sympathetic, even though uh, she is part of this really horrible series of events. So uh, Tony Collette has, we have to kind of bow at the altar of Tony, but she's also surrounded by an incredible supporting cast, including Gabriel Byrne and Anne Dowd, and even the young actors I think are exceptional. So uh, yeah, just applause there. I just got to say, I am totally smitten with Ari Aster. You know, this is not really something we talked about we plan to talk about the pod, but we talked about it privately. I feel like we are at this point where there are some newcomers slash people who should have broken out before who just broke out in the new, like art tour film director that are just fantastic. They I'm bought in. I am fans. Ari Aster is one of them. Greta Gerwig is another one of them. Um, Ryan Johnson, Barry Jenkins, Taika Waititi, this kind of like up and coming generation. Uh, and Bong Joon-ho, even you, you mentioned him last night, even though he's been making movies for a long time, he's finally breaking into a mainstream market. And these, uh, they're becoming the new, the new guard. They're the new Scorseses and Tarantinos and so on, which is really exciting to see that young, innovative talent. Yeah, and we think of Hollywood and the business of Hollywood right now as being dominated by the long-form serial, by the franchises, by the Star Wars, the Marvels, the DCs. And very much this is true. These these are huge movies that are happening, which we love here at The Midnight Myth and have talked about at length. But a lot of times you hear this refrain that, like, there's not a lot of original movies happening. Incorrect. A24 is making them. <laughs> there are a lot. They're coming out. They're amazing. And they are changing the game, reinventing the game, or being respect to the respectful to the games that happened before while still doing something unique. Um, yeah. So enough of the, the praise. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not here to, to listen to Derek and Laurel gush about how much they love this movie. Where would you like to start in terms of analysis? Well, there is so, so much to say about this movie. And for me, uh, it comes down to kind of an analysis of form and how this movie plays with the conventions of genre. You and I discussed maybe approaching this from uh, a lens similar to the way we looked at things like the never ending story and Star Wars of all things, which is, okay, how, how about we start kind of where the movie starts uh, zooming into a diorama, a dollhouse, a miniature. Uh, and let's start by decoding the symbolic language here because the movie gives us a lot of it. And I think that is a really cool way to get into form, structure, and theme. I totally am into that. 
one of the most striking characteristics of the character Annie is that she is a professional miniaturist. She makes little miniature models and she is in the process of making a huge gallery. You get the sense that this is a major breadwinner for the family. Like it's very important that she gets this completed. This is her work. And as the events of the movie are unfolding, the funeral of her mother, she makes a, a, a miniature. The death of her daughter, she makes a miniature. And right before the both psychological, spiritual, you know, climax of it, what does Annie do? She destroys the miniatures. The very first opening shot is of the miniatures that zooms in, then becomes our characters. It's clear to me that Ari Aster is saying these miniatures are super important to understanding the character Annie and understanding how this movie is quite literally framed as it's framed as a miniature. And like, I'm not going to lie. I, I fancy myself fairly clever. I can usually break these things down. It is something that I still ponder. Why the miniatures of our art forms that Annie could be doing? Why is it this? Why does the movie start with miniatures? Why Why is it so important? Uh, what do you think? Oh, well, I have a lot to say about this, but uh, I just want to elaborate a little bit. We, we often feel in this movie like we are in a dollhouse. Uh, so one of the things that was discussed and created in the production of this film, uh, most of the interiors are shot on sound stages, so they are not in a real house. They're in a constructed set that, honestly, if you look at the house where most of the action of this film takes place, it is absurd and very bizarre in its layout. And most of that is to create the sense um, that there are walls you can just kind of pass through. Uh, there are these, uh, there's space for really wide framing. So you can often see at least three walls and part of the ceiling, which is not something you can usually see in a typical uh, Hollywood shot, typical Hollywood framing. Uh, we have long, slow takes we have lots of dolly shots and like crane shots that zoom in very slowly, making us feel like we rarely cut. So uh, it's creating this atmosphere that even the real spaces that are not presented as miniatures are toys, right? We always feel like we're not really in a real space. We feel like we are in a lab or we feel like we are in one of these dollhouses that Annie is looking at with her little attached magnifying glass. You know, it's interesting that you say that because even though most of the movie is shot, you know, there's a lot of close up in it, but a lot of this movie is shot where you can see the whole room. Yeah. And a lot of the dimensions just feel slightly off. It's interesting you said that, but it also for a movie where the camera seems so far away from the action, where it feels like you're watching a play, it also has a sense of deep claustrophobia. Yeah, it yeah. feels as if the walls of this place are closing in somehow when and the way that it works with light is very interesting. The way that when the lights are off, you feel like you see faces everywhere, much like you are when you're a kid in a dark room and you think every single shadow and bend of light could be a goblin or a ghoul. And then you turn on the light and it's just furniture or a yeah. sweatshirt this movie directly plays in that sort of childlike fear of the dark where a normal space can somehow become a scary space, where an open, wide, big room can somehow feel small and claustrophobic 
and like it's suffocating you. And the way that it does that is really awesome. Yeah. Well, and uh, you can see a lot of the influence of Stanley Kubrick and The Shining, I think, there with the camera work and with the symmetrical framing, the long takes, et cetera, and also with the sort of physical attributes of the house, lots of like really intricate wallpaper and so on, um, and tight, tight hallways. But again, we're not relying on the jump scare, right? So when we uh, when we get the sense that there is something lingering in the corner of the room, we're not going to get a really quick cut to that thing with a dunt of music to scare us out of our pants, you know? We're going to get a slow, long take where at first we don't see it, but as you continue to look at the frame, you start to hear audience members gasp, right? When they catch the fact that there is somebody hiding in the corner there. So again, it's playing with uh, a sense of building dread, a sense of like uh, using all of the space to leverage observation, to leverage the fact that we have to look for all the details rather than telling us exactly what to look at, but always creating this sense that we are under observation, that the characters are being watched. Uh, so really cool uh, insight that you brought up there. The real reason I think that miniatures are what we are using here has to do with form and genre in Hereditary. I tend to think, and I think there's a lot of supporting evidence and a lot of quotes from the director and a lot of writing about this, but I believe that Hereditary is first and foremost a tragedy, and I think it is a horror movie second. This is not to say that it's any less scary, because I do think it's the scariest movie that came out in 2018 and one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. But I think its primary genre and its primary formulation is as a tragedy, especially in the ancient Greek sense. Now, uh, the way that miniatures, I think, play deeply into this is that one of the uh, primary concerns of tragedy, uh, and this is true in ancient Greece and this is true in Shakespeare and this is true kind of in most iterations of dramatic tragedy, is that it's constantly asking the question of who or what is responsible for the events of our lives. Are we humans responsible and capable of driving our own actions? Uh, so is Peter responsible for Charlie's death? Is Annie responsible for the attempt on Peter's life? Is she responsible for her sleepwalking? Or are there sinister forces at work that drive these terrible outcomes that are totally outside of our control? It is constantly going to be asking us that question. It does that through miniatures by making us feel like someone is watching their playthings, like someone is manipulating these objects, manipulating these dolls, and that they have no agency. Whoa. Now, I don't think that hereditary comes down on the side of one or the other in any deeply explicit way. I think it is very much questioning, you know, who is responsible I think you can absolutely land on a reading of this film where all of the actions, all of the events, all of the terribly gruesome thing that, things that happen are set up by this cult and therefore, you know, no one could avoid it. We were heading for this outcome all along and we have no control over our actions. But I do think the film is still playing in questions of blame, in questions of guilt we see Annie constantly blamed and feeling guilty for her actions in her past. But then we also see her blaming her uh, hereditary mental illness. We see her blaming her mother uh, for how she treated her family before. Uh, 
as the as the cause of how she treats her family now. So there is this question, I think, of who's in control that is uh, constantly at the center of the family drama, but also of the sort of cosmological implications of the story. Yeah, and it's interesting that in the class that Peter is in, a presumably English literature class, they discuss two different uh, Greek myths, Greek stories, Greek plays. One is about Heracles, a.k.a. Hercules. And Hercules was most famously known for going mad by Hera and slaughtering his whole family and going on then the 12 labors to atone for this crime. Hercules, a father driven crazy by a goddess, a divine mother, if you would, driven crazy, slaughtered his family and must atone. The other one is about Iphigenia, which is not as well known as Heracles, but Iphigenia is the daughter of Agamemnon. And when Agamemnon, who is one of the great generals of the Trojan War, wanted to sail across the Aegean Sea to invade Troy, he accidentally killed a buck or a deer that was sacred to Artemis. And Artemis demanded that Agamemnon sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia, otherwise they would not allow the ships to sail. And Agamemnon chooses to sacrifice his daughter so that the Trojan War can happen. Now, these uh, these myths are very much dealing in this same psychological dilemma that we see these characters in. The idea that there can be paternalistic or maternalistic figures, mothers or fathers, which can do psychic harm to their literal or symbolic children, and that that is then passed down to the next generation There's a reason why someone like Sigmund Freud studied the ancient myths of the ancient Greek and Roman world, because he thought it was an insight to a more raw time where we were collectively allowing our subconscious to be codified into stories that we pass down. And they teach us that our mothers and fathers will often kill us, that we are in little or no control over our lives and that the vicissitudes of powers greater than us will dominate us, and the best that we can do is atone. They are manifestations of both our superegos and our ids. One of the most interesting quotes that I came to in researching this movie was from someone whose job it is to advise Hollywood about Eastern occultism. So if you want to do a movie about genies or witches from the east they asked this occultist and i hopefully don't mispronounce pronounce this kashmir shivast which is known as the witch of hollywood they ask this person um, about hereditary and about the decapitations so we see three decapitations in this movie the first is the decapitation of charlie the removal of the head when Charlie hits the pole. The second part of me is in the desecration of the grandmother's body that the head is removed. And then the third is the self decapitation of Annie who removes her head at the end ceremony. You have two headless corpses, one, which is Annie, one, which is her mother bent in supplication to the decapitated head of Charlie placed on a statue of payment. And this quote was that, 
the decapitation, just to quickly summarize, is the removal of ego. And what is left is the heart. In Hinduism, two deities come to mind immediately. Ganesha, who is decapitated by his own father. Shiva, who placed his head with that of who replaced his head with that of an elephant. The other is Chinamitsa, a form of Kali who cuts her head off to feed others from her own blood. In these cultural scenarios, decapitation symbolizes the detachment from ego that leads to deification and sacrifice. So in the East, decapitation is akin to crucifixion. Suffering for others makes you a god. Ooh, and you know what? Uh, so I, I want to talk more about this lit class, but as you were saying that, I was thinking about the quotation that is on the board in the lit class of the second scene that we see of it, uh, which is punishment brings wisdom as he's talking about Iphigenia. So that sense of uh, crucifixion or uh, cleansing through this uh, brutal and violent act, punishment brings wisdom, decapitation brings deification. I think that's super interesting. Um, yeah, and fascinating quote. Psychoanalytically, the removal of the ego only leaves us then with the super ego in the id, moralism and raw emotion and feeling and pleasure. And I think our characters are constantly in these ego-destroying positions where they're seeking pleasure or they're punishing themselves for the pleasures that they seek. So for example, the inability, the inability to feel remorse at a mother's death drives Joni. The pleasure of smoking weed and hitting on the cute girl in your class drives Peter. All of these things lead to pain that then the superego tells them they must feel punishment. So Peter, instead of looking out for his sister, smokes weed and is trying to mack on the cute girl in his class. This leads to his sister's death. He must be punished. He punishes himself. His mother the, the super ego manifest punishes him, screams at him like, you are not worthy. You will not take responsibility. And he punishes himself, which makes him ripe for the possession. His self-hatred makes it easier for the demons to come in to take this family and to take over his body. In other words, our own self-hatred, our own desire to seek our own selfish impulses and then desire, then punishing ourselves because we desire that brings us psychically out of harmony, which allows these demons, whether they are literal or metaphoric, to come into our homes and destroy us. Yeah, well, and then in the sort of text that gives us the exposition about Payman, we see that he will naturally possess the most vulnerable host. So all of this like self-punishment and anguish combined with the you know words of power, people shouting at Peter to be cast out of his body and all of the horrible things that he witnesses, this kind of uh, regiment of psychological and physical torture creates a vulnerable host in him that is ripe for being possessed by payment. Um, I want to rewind just a little bit to talk about this lit class and the two plays that you brought up. Um, because First and foremost, I want to take this lit class, and I cannot believe that a high school literature class is spending uh, that much time on 
on Greek tragedy for one. On Sophocles and the Oresteia? Yeah, yeah, come on. Several months pass, I think, between the two scenes of the lit class, and they're still on a Greek tragedy unit, but they don't start, they they don't read Oedipus, at least to my knowledge. They read Women of Trachis, which is a much lesser Sophocles play, and that's the Heracles play that you were mentioning. So Heracles in the myths has this great parallel in that in a fit of madness, much like sleepwalking, he slaughters his children and his first wife. So that very much corresponds to Annie. But the play Women of Trachis focuses more on his second wife, Dianera, who is the one who accidentally brings about Heracles's downfall and death by sending him this poisoned coat that she thinks will stop him from having affairs, but it's actually got the the venom of Nessus. So it ends up killing him uh, against her will. And it brings this whole family down. Interesting play because it's also got lots of questions of gender and uh, women taking on masculine traits. And Hercules or Heracles, as he's dying, says, I'm weak, so I feel like a woman. So there are these interesting questions that I think are also uh, echoed in Hereditary. But the second play, I'm assuming, is the Oresteia by Aeschylus. It could also be the Euripides play about Iphigenia. But the Oresteia is a trilogy about Agamemnon, and it begins with Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, plotting to murder her husband in revenge for the sacrifice of their daughter, Iphigenia. So it, again, like women of Trachis, has uh, a woman plotting the downfall of a man, although this time it's willful rather than accidental. Uh, And the later installments of the Oresteia, the the other two plays in the trilogy, concern her trial and their son Orestes' revenge killing of Clytemnestra. So it's a family tragedy that features the sacrifice of children and an entire family tearing each other apart And also, this family is descended from a family under an ancient curse. So as just as the Grams are, we've got a family that is like bent on tearing each other apart. They do not communicate. They are not a happy family. They have real trauma in their past that they have refused to address and work out. But there's also a demonic cult or a curse that is working on this family as well. So uh, I think we get an interesting way to come back to that question of who is really in control, who is setting the events of the tragedy in motion, because we can't really squarely place the blame on anyone's shoulders, whether those are the outside sinister forces or the humans in this triangle that's left. Everybody shares a little bit of the responsibility here. And I think the other space where tragedy comes into hereditary is not just saying, okay, the people have a moral responsibility or the cult has a a literal responsibility in setting all of these events in motion, but we also are beholden to family, right? We're beholden to hereditary traits. We're beholden to things like a nut allergy that we were born with, that we cannot control that it has been with us for our entire lives and is just a freak of genetics or whatever, but it literally sets into motion the events that cause someone's death. And that is something totally outside of human responsibility. It's just what it is, and it's a tragic trait. It's the same thing with hereditary mental illness. 
This is generation upon generation of a family that has dealt with mental illness and has not been able to get a handle on it. We've got a father who died of psychotic depression. We have a brother who uh, Annie claims was schizophrenic, but of course it seems like he was also being demonically possessed by his mother. But we have a family history that we can't control. We can't choose our families and we can't choose what hereditary traits are passed on to us. So the things that create tragedy in our lives are often things that were set in motion generations ago, whether those are hereditary traits that our families pass on or a demonic possession ritual that was orchestrated before we were born. You know, this brings me back to the miniatures, which kicked off this discussion, trying to understand why the miniatures are there. And in many ways, to me, the miniature and the fact that Annie is a miniaturist, they recognize, or pardon me, they represent a form of control for Annie. This gives her the ability to make a piece of artwork that she has 100% control over, that she can design, and that she gets to be the little goddess of the little miniature world. And the movie itself, starting with the miniatures, entering and exiting the camera through the lens of the miniatures, is telling us that the movie itself is a miniature version. And the idea is that this little sphere of control that Annie has, which is then her artistic outlook, in which she is then freezing moments in permanentness that she can then reflect and look at from a three-dimensional view as if she were the, the mini goddess of her mini, uh, you know, ancient world. And I think that represents the broader themes of whether or not we are beholden by the mental illnesses or genetic traits that were passed down to us or the demon cult that we're actually a part of that we didn't really know we were a part of. That there is this idea that we can control what we can can control, but there are aspects beyond our control and they will affect us. I do think this movie says quite clearly that these main characters are trapped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And whether that trapped fatalistic element is magical in nature, whether it's philosophical, whether it is biological determinism, I think is the question. You know, Ari Aster says you should not read this movie as a metaphor for mental illness. However, considering that we have a scene where a character, Annie, describes the mental illness in her family when she goes to the grief counseling and the movie's called Hereditary, you can't help but ask yourself if that isn't part isn't a way to read it, which granted is not Ari Aster's intention, but we now know that mental illness is genetically passed from one generation to another. We now know that if you have mental illness in your family, it's more likely to be in your children or in their children than it is in a family without mental illness. So we now know that mental illness is a hereditary trait and we're watching a family go insane. And it's hard not to think that that is an actual valid read of this movie. Right. I think uh, what that quote signals to me is like, we shouldn't read this as Annie is mentally ill. Therefore she's tormenting her family and none of this supernatural stuff is real. Um, I think it's very important to clue into the title being hereditary and the, uh, the idea that 
uh, we cannot control who we were born to and that the things that are passed down in our family, whether those are hereditary literal traits or their uh, demonic possession rituals, are things that are conspired before we are even conceived. Well, I think we've nailed the miniatures and tragedy as one part of this movie. I think, uh, would you want to transition a little bit? Is that cool? Of course. One of the other main themes of this movie, the family, the way they're trapped, the way the miniatures are trapped, the way it echoes to Greek tragedy. Um, The other thing that this movie is about, it's very much about the occult. Yeah, and it it tricks you, right? So you think that this movie is about a creep. You you see the marketing, you see the trailer, and you think this movie is about a creepy kid and the ghost of Annie's mother. And then it very slowly unfolds and becomes something totally different. I remember being really floored the first time that, oh, all of a sudden this is a movie about demon conjuring. It was pretty shocking. And this begs a question. What is the occult? What is this demonology? Where does this come from and how is it represented in this movie? And this movie does a really interesting job. It etches occult words onto the house that the occultists are doing. Um, These words are... Satoni, Zazas, and Liftoach Pandemonium. All words that have different occultish meanings or undertones. Thank you for saying them. I would have brutalized them. I don't know if I said them right, but... It has psychic meanings. I may have just opened up a portal to a demon dimension in our podcast studio, but Uh, it's okay. We'll deal with it after we record. Yeah, I totally got this. I will fight the demons. I'll hit them over the head with the guitar behind me. Well done. And the demons will be gone. No. Um, So yes, it's the occult. It's demonology. It has magic spells. It has mediums. It has all of these different various, um, occultic symbols and rituals, the idea that this occult is here to conjure this demon called Payman. In fact, that Payman lives in Charlie the entire time and that Charlie must be killed so the demon can be freed, the demon can be freed. All of this to say, what is all of this stuff about? Where does it come from? Why do we have it? And how does this movie interact with the occult? And it's clear to me after watching also Midsummer. Ari Aster's second movie, that this is a subject that he's really interested in. The occult, these ancient evil religions that involve things like human sacrifice. So to start off with, the main sort of demon is Payman. Who is Payman? Is this real? Did they invent him? So Payman is not actually invented by Ari Aster in this movie. Some have argued that Payman is actually an ancient Mesopotamian goddess from the ancient Mesopotamian pagan religion that has been repurposed as a Christian demon. Some have argued that Payman is actually an ancient pre-Islamic jinn, or as we say in the West, a genie. But Payman, as we see it kind of talked about in this movie, comes from um, the 17th century called a grimoire or spell book called the Lesser Key of Solomon. This is where that there's a development in the sort of mythological, metaphysical, religious world of the of Christian cosmology, where they develop hell as a tiered system 
with demons, lesser demons, and fallen angels that demons then command. Paimon is apparently a very loyal demon to Lucifer or Satan. Most demons are kind of in it for themselves, but Paimon is really like down with the Lucifer vision. And Paimon is supposed to be a demon of wisdom, of knowledge. Conjuring Paimon means that you get to knowledge of science, philosophy, conjuring gets the arts, and also gives you uh, great riches and individual wealth. Paimon is said to believe to be a crowned, riding a camel, and one conjured would have a mighty roar every time that payment would be conjured. Um, and in many ways, there's been pushback among occultists that payment is not a demon. So if you're an occultist, I found one by the name of Greg Bismarck, who says that payment is a demon only to those who demonize him. He is one of the 72 spirits written about in the Gotia, a lesser key of Salmon, and he is actually a jinn, just like Aladdin and the lamp. There is a movement, a sort of counterculture movement that started, it appears, in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, that started to take and reclaim this sort of Christian, deep, hellish cosmology. The idea that hell was a complicated place with many different powerful creatures and started taking those individual creatures, those demons, as personal symbols of worship. Some of them literal in that they could make sacrifices to these demons and these demons would intercede on their behalf. Some of them symbolic. They'd be symbols of things like free will, anti-conformity, um, women's rights. And this kind of gave birth to the modern occult that we have today. So that being said, it's unlikely that there'd be a group of very powerful sorcerers. So, And I learned in the occult world, if you are a sorcerer, you are one that tries to conjure demons. You are one that actively does what we see, the conjuring of payment so that payment can inhabit a human body. It's very unlikely that we have occults out there that are literally trying to conger, conjure people like payment and run these massive conspiracies. The other, you know, question that I have about this is why the occult? Why is that such a fascinating subject for horror movies? And it's one that Ari Aster is not unique in using. There's a lot of horror movies and a lot of horror genre in writ large outside of cinema that uses the occult and those who worship demons. And I think it has to do with a few key factors, if you'll allow me to illuminate them. Yeah. One, there's a part of this movie in which we read a letter in a book about spiritualism from Annie's mother that Annie writes to her. And in it, she says, quote, our sacrifices will be worth the war rewards, end quote. And this is about a transactional relationship to religion. This is something that comes directly from the ancient world, there are gods, some more powerful than other. There are spirits. There are demigods. There are heroes. There are ancestors. You make a sacrifice to them in the expectation that you get something back in return here in the material world. It's not concerned, ancient religion, with the saving of the soul, which is something that doesn't give you a world, a reward, pardon me, in the material world, but in the spiritual world. This made the transition from paganism to monotheism a transition from a material relationship of religion to a soteriological relationship to religion. 
Soteriological means the study of the soul and how to save it. And so because ancient paganism is material and not soteriological, it makes it ripe for this idea that you can sacrifice to these demons to get things. And if you're not concerned with the saving of the soul in the next life or the spirit life or the broader sense, but just to gain things in this life, there's an inherent um, symbolic and literary selfishness that's being exploited. Now, in most actual cases, you got to cross a river, you've got to go on a harrowing journey, you're not sure if you're going to have enough food for the winter, you really want the gods to help you out, so you sacrifice. It's not because you're selfish, it's because you genuinely believe that divine energies will intercede on your behalf, and in the ancient world, it's a very harsh, cruel world. A winter might mean famine and disease, and it might mean everybody dying. If you can do something to prevent it, you should do it. And that's the way that the ancient religions worked. This was largely scrutinized in the transition out of a pagan past, a pagan ancient past, and a Christian and Islamic medieval world, in which religion was about individuals and groups of individuals engaging in activities that were spiritually beneficial, not for their life here, but for the next life. Simply put, paganism, transactional, uh, Christianity, and then Islam, spiritual. And in that way, rational. Now, the transition in the ancient world, and I didn't want to go on a tangent, but now that we're here, like, permit happens. me this tangent totally into the ancient happens. world. The transition out of paganism into monotheism was a messy, long affair. It didn't just click on. It wasn't just suddenly one day everyone converted to either Islam or into Christianity in the Near East and the West. It was a long, slow process. One of the ways in which this was possible was, one, the replacement of pagan symbols with Christian symbols, in particular in the West. So if you went to a place and you sacrificed to, let's say, Apollo, just naming a god randomly, you always went here and sacrificed to Apollo, or even a lesser-known Germanic deity, the Catholic Church did is they would take down the statue of Apollo and put a saint there. So as people went to do their rituals to pray, instead of doing it to Apollo, they were now doing it to a saint. This is a long game. You realize the first generation is going to be pissed, but after three or four generations— People aren't going to remember that Apollo was once there. After all, most of these were medieval peasants. They couldn't read. Or even worse, or not worse, or they were ancient Roman slaves who had no education that then became medieval peasants. And then there was the propaganda war that was waged amongst the pagan gods. This happened in both medieval Europe and in the ancient Near East. And that is that your pagan gods are not actually gods. You can't tell someone who's been worshiping Odin or Zeus or Marduk or any of the spirits or demigods that what they were doing was actually not true because they believed very much that it was true. So you can't say what you're doing is wrong, but what you can say is those gods are real and they will give you a benefit if you sacrifice them, but they're not actually gods. They are demons who work for Satan. And what you're engaging in then is Satan worship. And this does a few different things. 
One, it scares people that they're actually worshiping evil spirits and getting evil benefits from those evil spirits. Two, it makes them illegal because devil worshiping was illegal. So it puts a legal um, mechanism by which you can punish those that engage in them. But this, this echo of paganism as the representation of Satanism started in particular in the late Roman Empire when it was transitioning out of paganism into Catholicism. And this took hold in the West. The pagan gods, yeah, they're there, but they're demons. But they are engaged. And when you worship Apollo, Zeus, Thor, you're engaging in demon worship. When you go to the festival of Marduk in Babylon, you're worshiping a demon. And this demon might seem like the demon's helping you right now, but long-term, you're going to, your soul is going to be punished in hell for eternity for these material gains. And this was a largely effective way of snuffing out um, paganism. And where does this fit in modern occultism? Now, this is a rambling point. Modern occultism is a resurgence of this paganism, but built not in the ancient pagan cosmology, but within the Catholic and Islamic cosmology. It's taking these lesser-known demons and saying, to a certain degree, we're going to reject the um, non-transactional view of religion, and we're going to embrace the transactional view of religion. We might do this literally, where we literally believe that if we kill people and sacrifice them, payment will come and we'll all be rich and wise and strong, or it might be symbolic, as it is in modern Satanism, where they say Satan is a symbol of free will and individualism against an oppressive patriarch. And in this, modern horror, in many ways, has adopted paganism as the symbol of demonism. And the one twinge of regret that I have when I reflect on the role of paganism and how it shaped modern occultism and then how that is then used by movies like The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, Hereditary. It's like, yo, stop beating up the pagans. We don't worship demons, we pagans, those that exist out there. It's okay that we can find another source of demonic terror and horror than in resurrecting artifacts of our ancient history and then recontextualizing them into demon worshipers. Uh, yeah, I think this is a really great point. You know, you brought up the exorcist and the uh, demon that possesses Reagan in the exorcist is Pazuzu, who is an ancient Mesopotamian god, which according to your research, there's some evidence to suggest that Paimon is related to an ancient Mesopotamian goddess. The trouble with all of this, the, the thing that makes researching an episode like this difficult is that we're dealing in esoterica and we're dealing in, uh, you know, the lesser key of Solomon, this text that attests Paimon and Baal and all of these uh, ranked demons, the princes and dukes and kings of hell. These are anonymous. These are texts that you wouldn't want to get caught writing lest you be burned as a heretic. And so there is an increasing difficulty in being able to trace the uh, evolution of these uh, creations across time. There is difficulty in seeing exactly where the transition happened sometimes between a god and a demon. But that, as you said, takes place slowly over time. 
by replacing people's objects of worship and by reframing their idea of how you are supposed to worship. And I, I do think it's really interesting to look at this trend in modern horror because it's not just classics like The Exorcist. It's the whole Conjuring franchise, which is deeply into uh, Catholic cosmology. It's the Amityville horror. It's like every uh, every corner of horror is very much tinged by this uh, lengthy relationship that we have to uh, Judeo-Christian cosmology and to paganism and the recodification of pagan deities into demons. I think that's a, a fascinating and important thing to bring up. Even when we love a horror film like Hereditary, it's like, okay, we kind of have to question, how did we get here? And snuffing out the last visits of paganism in the sake of a Catholic or Islamic or, you know, cosmology, while that suits really well to the medieval power structures and religious structures of their day and time. When we are dealing with our modern sensibilities, the one thing that I think I personally benefit for is benefit from is the idea of allowing a little bit of magic and mysticism into our lives, though I don't take it literal and I don't actually believe in magic. The idea of holding a personal God or personal deity that gives me power and strength is something that I gain immense comfort from and having a foot in the spirit world and a foot in the real world isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you're in a world like hereditary where the spirit world is inherently dangerous and populated with demons though entertaining as it is and psychologically thrilling as it is and the many layers that we can understand this movie, it does draw upon very ancient uh, stereotypes about paganism as bad, reinforced by modern occultism, which has been also, quote-unquote, demonized, for lack of a better term, by religious institutions that are largely trying to take these symbols and reclaim them in a way that is not about, you know, killing children. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what else you got? Any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, just a couple of final thoughts. This has been a really stimulating discussion, and I think this movie, you know, can get people going in a lot of different directions, and there are so many riches to it that it rewards multiple viewings. So I highly recommend if you're listening and you've seen it once, watch it again and watch for those details. Watch for the writing on the wall and see what happens. I want to close... Um, by reading a quote from Bong Joon-ho, the director of Snowpiercer and Parasite and The Host and so on, um, who actually wrote the foreword of A24's hereditary script book. So A24, the production company, likes to actually publish really nice volumes of the screenplays for uh, their movies, and they had Bong Joon-ho write this introductory essay. Um, so I'd love to read just a, a quote from it, where he says, quote, while the film is an impeccable work of genre in which occult elements are cleverly, tightly woven together, I wonder if genre is just a cover for the real horror. Because the true horror comes from the family itself. One of the most terrifying scenes in the film is the dimly lit dinner scene, which has no occult elements and relies solely on Tony Collette's explosive performance. This film is ostensibly about the hell a family suffers as a generation after generation is swallowed by a demon, but it's actually saying that family itself, or ties defined by blood, is hell, end quote. On that positive note, until next time... Mm -hmm.
Be kind. Be kind. Be kind.